I want to begin our chapel today by telling you a little bit of a story about my time in college, and particularly in reference to two people that I went to college with. This is in a Christian college, Christian in the sense that it was called a Christian college, and Christian in the sense that it had some church relationships, but there were some things that were very lacking in that Christian experience for me there. But I want to tell you about a friend. When I went there, he was uh, on the football team, outstanding athlete, had been a great high school athlete. He and I became very, very good friends. He was student body president. I was student body vice president. Um, I had been elected student body vice president against my will. I didn't want the job, but I got it, and it began to cultivate a relationship with him. We also ran together in the same backfield. He was a very fine runner, and um, we ran side by side for two seasons together. He uh, blocked for me from time to time, and I blocked for him from time to time, and we both played defense together. He played one corner, and I played the other corner. Sometimes I played a safety position. Sometimes he played a safety position. He played a little bit of baseball, so we were good friends, very good friends. His father was a pastor. My father was a pastor. His father knew my father. They had had meetings together. They had preached together. They had been longtime friends. He was raised in a Christian family. I was raised in a Christian family. Our lives paralleled each other in many, many ways. His goal after graduation from college was to go into the ministry. He was a youth pastor in a church. My goal was to go into ministry. I was a youth pastor in a church. He had a girlfriend. I had a girlfriend. So it went. Today, now, at this particular time, he's serving the last parts of his jail sentence. I'm here. Something's happened in between. When he got out of college, he decided to go on and get a master's degree. He got a master's degree in sociology. He went on beyond that, got a Ph.D. in sociology. And the first time I heard about him after many years was that he was put in jail, fired from his position at one of our state universities for parading a string of naked young people across in front of a class in sociology and showing them pornographic movies. That's about the time I had just graduated from seminary and I was beginning my ministry as a pastor. We did ministry together in college. We talked a lot about theology. We took all the same classes. Something was very different. Both of us with the same background, both of us with fathers who were pastors, both of us raised in the church, both of us educated in the same place, and so divergent. And the reason is one of us was saved and one of us was not. My friend didn't know Christ. Later on, he got into drugs, heavy into drugs, became an entrepreneur of rock music, divorced his wife, and the story goes on and on and on. It's a sad story. It's a story that I never would have believed if somebody had told me that story because I knew him so well and he had all the right answers. He always had the right answers. In fact, if I remember right, he was about a full point above me in his GPA. Super bright guy. But he wasn't a Christian. For a long time he thought he was. And he lived under the most frightening and horrifying illusion that anyone can ever, ever live under. And that is to think you're a Christian when you're not. 
And then when your Christianity, the brand you think you have, comes up bankrupt, you chuck the whole thing because if that's Christianity, who needs it? And that's the thing that has concerned me ever since that. In fact, it goes even before that to a man that I went, young man that I went to high school with named Ralph. Played first base on the baseball team. Played quarterback on the football team. Another one of my buddies. We used to go down into the inner city and witness on the street corner and give the gospel. He went away to college, wrote me a letter one time and said, I just thought I ought to tell you I'd become an atheist. Raised in the church. Had all the right answers. How can it happen? It can happen because it's possible to be deceived about whether you're a Christian. I want you to open your Bibles to James chapter 1 for a moment. Verse 22. This is what it says. But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only. What's the next statement? What? Deceiving yourselves, right? If you are only a listener to the Word of God and not a doer of the Word of God, you are self-deceived. That's what he says. There are a lot of people that are self-deceived. They hear the Scripture. They may even believe it. Look at chapter 2, verse 19 of James. He says, you believe there is one God, you do well. The devils or demons also believe and what? Shake, tremble. There are a lot of people who hear and believe, but are terribly deceived. All they have is really a, a demon faith, a faith, James says in verse 20, without Works. There are so many hearers. One more passage that I want you to turn to in Matthew chapter 7. One that perhaps is familiar to you. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. This is probably the most frightening scene in all of Scripture. It says, the Lord is speaking, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord... In other words, not everyone who says to me, I know you, Lord, you're my Lord, 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 not just Lord, but Lord, Lord, a more intimate expression. But not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but rather he that does my father's will. And again, it's not the hearers, it's the what? It's the doers, isn't it? And many will say, verse 20 says, Lord, Lord, we've prophesied in your name, haven't we? We've cast out demons in your name. We've done many wonderful works in your name. In other words, we, we know who you are. We believe in who you are. We have been involved in religious activities and enterprises. And I will then confess to them, I never knew you. Leave me, you workers of iniquity. Really an unbelievable scene. There will be people who will come face to face with Jesus Christ and think they're going to heaven and wind up in hell. John Bunyan said the entrance to hell is from the portals of heaven for some people. Frightening thought. 
that people can be deceived. So deceived as to think they're Christians when they're not. And there are people who believe all the right things, who get involved in religious activity. I can go back to my days in college to another young man, other than the one I mentioned, student body president, walked out of that Christian college and denied Jesus Christ the rest of his life. He wanted something else. He became an alcoholic, destroyed his life. How do we understand these things? What does it really mean to be a Christian? How do I know I'm genuinely saved and not self-deceived? Let me see if I can't answer that for you a little bit. And I want you to listen very carefully. This is the most important subject in the universe, the matter of salvation. First of all, let me tell you what does not guarantee your salvation, okay? Number one, no amount of knowledge, no amount of knowledge is proof of salvation. No amount of knowledge. You can know a lot about the Bible. You can know everything about the Bible. You can know theology. You can know principles of spiritual living. Listen, the demons are all orthodox. There's not, there's not any such thing as a liberal demon. All demons believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. All demons believe in the Trinity, the deity of Jesus Christ, the deity of the Holy Spirit. All of them believe that salvation has come by grace through faith. They all believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They all believe in the Word of God. Demons know. They know not only because they have read, but because they have observed. They know the saving power of the work of Christ. They know the power of Scripture. They know the power of angels. They know about heaven. They know about hell. They know about religious experience. They have a supernatural knowledge. They know more than you or I could ever know because we're natural and they're supernatural. And yet the demons are damned forever. No amount of knowledge is a proof of salvation. There are many people who know what the Bible teaches, who know what the church teaches, who know what is right and what is true. That doesn't necessarily mean they're saved. Secondly, no amount of belief in the truth is necessarily a proof of salvation. As I said, the devil is orthodox. The demons are orthodox. They believe all those things. They don't know salvation. I can go back to the same football team that I was on with the friend I mentioned to you earlier and tell you about the coach great friend of mine, friend of mine for many years, still a very successful, very prominent, very respected football coach. I remember one time we were flying to San Francisco. We didn't have a lot of money in our football budget, but when we took road trips like that, usually the linemen took a bus and the skill players took a plane. So we were happy, we happened to be on the airplane. There were some people he felt that had to get there on time. We flew to San Francisco to play a big game in San Francisco. Sitting on the airplane, I had an opportunity to present the gospel to him for about the fifth time. I said, I believe all that. I believe every bit of that. I said, are you willing to commit your life to Jesus Christ? No. That went on for years and years and years and years. And here I am, 25 years later, and he's still saying the same thing. 
I believe all that. And someday before I die, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. But not until I've lived my life the way I want to live it. No amount of belief is proof of salvation. Lots of people believe. Lots of people. Thirdly, no amount of fear of God's judgment is proof of salvation. There are a lot of people who are afraid of hell. There are a lot of people who are afraid of judgment. The demons believe and what? Why are they trembling? Because they know what's going to happen. You remember the demons that were in the maniac of Gadara? They cried out, Jesus, please don't send us to the pit. They didn't want to go there. No, there are plenty of people who fear judgment. There are plenty of people who want to appease God. I mean, you can look back into the study of ethnology, the study of religions of man, and you will find in every religious system, there is some way in which men can expiate their sin because they feel guilt and they want to avoid judgment. They're afraid. But no amount of fear of judgment and no amount of fear of hell is necessarily a proof of salvation. The demons fear that. And I would add a fourth thing, no amount of guilt is necessarily a proof of salvation. You're convicted of sin because you, uh, you have a conscience and you can feel very guilty and that doesn't necessarily mean you're saved. Everybody feels guilty about sin. Conviction of sin, the sense that you deserve judgment, even the demons felt that. They knew what they deserved. They knew their guilt. That doesn't mean that they were saved. Doesn't mean that anyone is saved just because they feel guilty. Lots of people go to the psychiatrist because they feel guilty. People drink because they feel guilty. They take drugs to alleviate their guilt, the sense of conviction of sin. Fifthly, and this might surprise you, no... No amount of desire for salvation is proof of salvation. Just because you desire it doesn't mean you're saved. There are certainly demons in hell that would like deliverance. There are certainly people in hell today who would like deliverance. There are people who would long to be saved. Why do you think people will? And I've seen this in Guadalajara, in Mexico. I've seen it in other Central American countries. I have watched Roman Catholic people in Montreal crawl on their knees for a quarter of a mile till their knees are bleeding because they want salvation. I watched a mother with a baby on her back go well over a quarter of a mile on her knees at the shrine of Guadalupe till her knees were bleeding because she so desperately wanted salvation. I watched people in the St. Joseph Oratorio, which is the largest Catholic cathedral in the Western Hemisphere in Montreal. I watched people crawl up a steep hill, hundreds of stairs on their knees, go in and kiss a little box that contains the heart of a dead friar because they desperately want salvation. No amount of desire for salvation is necessarily a proof of it. Lots of people desire it. I think probably Hindus and Buddhists and Muslims desire it. 
And sixthly, I would say, no amount of religious activity is necessarily proof of salvation. Lots of people are involved in religion. We have religion going on fast and furious across the face of the world. You can be in a church, you can be in a Christian college, you can be involved in a Bible study, you can be involved in a communion service, you can be baptized, uh, you can go through all kinds of religious rituals, whatever they might be, and that has absolutely no relationship to salvation necessarily. See, these are the things that don't verify salvation. Let me just remind you of what they are again so you understand clearly. Number one, no amount of knowledge is necessarily proof of salvation. Number two, no amount of belief is necessarily proof of salvation. Number three, no amount of the fear of God's judgment is necessarily proof of salvation. No amount of guilt over sin is proof of salvation. No amount of desire for salvation necessarily proves you have it. And no amount of religious activity is proof of salvation. You want to know where I got those? Out of a sermon by Jonathan Edwards. These things were obvious to him as they are to us. People of God have been preaching this kind of message for a long, long time. Jonathan Edwards knew what demon faith was, and we need to know as well. True saints are utterly different than anything like this. You say, well, John, what's the bottom line? The bottom line is this, and here's what I want you to understand. There are many, many people who know the truth. There are many people who even believe it. There are many people who fear God's judgment. There are many people who feel guilty over sin. There are many people who desire salvation. There are many people who are outwardly, outwardly religious. But none of that makes the difference. The bottom line is this. True conversion, true salvation, comes to people who hate sin and love holiness. Okay? They hate sin and they love holiness. That's the proof of true salvation. Secondly, they desire to turn from self and serve God. Those two things. That's kind of the sum of the elements that point to true salvation. So you have to look at your own heart. That's really the issue. You have to examine yourself. And you have to be honest about this. You certainly don't want to deceive yourself on this subject, right? So you ask yourself two simple questions. One, when there's sin in my life, do I find that I hate that sin? And is there in my heart a longing for holiness? Do I recognize sin in me and hate it and love holiness? Or do I really love my sin and try to parade my religion? Am I covering up what my real desires are? I mean, be very practical about it. You're here in the college. There are certain standards and rules. And are you saying to yourself, all the things that God wants me to do, I want to do with all my heart. 
And do you say to yourself, whenever you don't do those things, whenever you violate a rule or a standard in principle or an act, do you say to yourself, I feel so guilty? Do you ask God to forgive you for that? That's the mark of true salvation. That says you have a changed nature. That says that the strongest and truest desire of your heart is to do what glorifies God, what honors God, and that's the essence of a changed life. Or are you saying, I'm going to play the game while everybody's watching, but what I really want to get to is the stuff I really like, sin. I want to break the rules so bad I can't stand it. As one student last year said, leaving in the middle of the year, I got to get out of here. I cannot stand this pressure any longer. He wanted to sin. He loved to sin. He hated to be righteous. He was religious, raised in a church, even made a profession of faith in Christ, but could not stand the pressure of living for God. The second thing you want to ask yourself in examining your own heart is very simple and basic, and that is, do I want to control my life? Or is my deepest desire that it should glorify God? Do I want to turn from self-desire and self-will to serve God, to do His pleasure, to live for Him, to honor Him? That's the inventory, folks. That's the inventory that every person needs to take in their own heart. Now with me for a moment, look at Matthew 19. And I want to illustrate this to you in the ministry of Jesus, Matthew 19. I won't take a lot of time with this. This is a familiar text. It's a story of what we call the rich young ruler. Notice how pointed it is. Here comes one. Now, I want to tell you about this guy. He really fits the picture. He comes and says to Jesus, by the way, if you compare Mark and Luke, who tell the same story, you'll find he came running. He was very eager. He came kneeling. He was very respectful. He's in a big hurry. He's a ruler of a synagogue, no doubt, which means he's a religious leader in the city. He is assumed to be a truly religious man, a believer in God. He is assumed, I'm sure, by everybody who knows him to know God in a personal way. They wouldn't have made him ruler of their synagogue. So he comes to Jesus. He knows about divine truth. He probably believes divine truth. He desires salvation and eternal life. He no doubt fears God's judgment. He is very religious. He's all those things that don't prove anything. And he even admits it when he says, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have what? Eternal life. How do I get eternal life? I got everything but eternal life. I got everything but what I need. He's even honest with himself. I'm I'm religious. I, I know what the Old Testament scriptures teach. I feel... The need for a change in my life. I don't think he was really fully, genuinely convicted of sin, as we shall see. But there was something missing, and he admitted that. He certainly didn't want to end up in eternity outside of the presence of God. That's why he brought up the issue of eternal life. So he says, what do I do to get eternal life? Jesus says to him, why are you asking me that? 
The only person you'd ever ask that, paraphrasing, is God. And you know what God said. God said, and he quotes from Deuteronomy, if you would enter into life, keep the commandments. If you want to live life with God, if you want to possess eternal life, if you want to enter into God's kingdom, keep the commandments. Now, is that the right answer? That's not the, not the right answer in evangelism class. When somebody comes to you and says, how do I become a Christian? Do you tell them to keep the commandments? That's what Jesus said. Why? Jesus was driving at the issue. He said to him, which ones? Verse 18. Which commandments do I keep? Jesus said, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, honor your father and mother. After the, Those are the second five in the Ten Commandments. Then he threw in, love your neighbor as yourself. And he gave him a sampler of the Ten Commandments and said, try those. And the young man said to him, all these things have I what? I've kept them all. What do I lack? He says, I've looked at my life and I just can't find any sin there. Now, there's a problem. You see, what Jesus was doing with this young man was bringing him to recognize his own what? His own sin. His own sin. Would he say, I am a sinner? Yes, I am a sinner and I desperately need forgiveness. I hate my sin. And then Jesus said to him, let me try another approach. Um... If you want to be perfect, if you want to have eternal life, sell everything you have, give it to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Now, you don't get saved by giving your money away, but you do indicate a true heart by being willing to do whatever Jesus asks. And if he asks you to give your money away and you're desperate enough, you say, Lord, where do you want me to send it? All Jesus wanted to establish with this young man was two things. Number one, would you recognize your sin and express a hatred of it? Two, will you deny yourself and submit to me? Those are always the two elements of true salvation. Someone who comes to Christ on his terms and is genuinely a believer hates sin and loves righteousness and willingly says no to self to say yes to the Lordship of Christ. That's the difference. That's the only difference. This was such a burden to Jesus that people truly be saved that he preached on it over and over and over. Let's notice some of the things he said. Go back again to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Now, remember what we read earlier in verses 21 to 23. The people who are truly saved are not the people who say something, but they're the people who what? Verse 21, who do the will of my Father. So the first characteristic of a true Christian is one who does God's will. And that implies a heart to do that. Now look at verse 24. And you'll see the same thing reinforced. Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them. I liken him to a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew. And this picture is judgment. And beat on the house and it didn't fall. It was founded on a rock. But everyone who hears these sayings and does not do them is like a man who built his house on sand. And when the judgment came, the whole thing collapsed. So the first thing Jesus says is, true salvation is manifest in obedience to my will. That's where you can do an inventory on your life. Now listen carefully to what I say. If you want to know if you're really a, a true Christian, 
Look at your life. Is the pattern of your life obedience to the will and the word of God? Is it? You say, what do you mean by that? I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about direction. Is the desire of your heart to say no to self and no to sin and yes to God and yes to holiness? If that's the desire of your heart, then that'll be the pattern of your life. Obedience. You won't just be a hearer of the word, you'll be a doer of the word. Jesus said it isn't the hearers, it's the doers. Now go over to chapter 13 and see what else he says. Starting in verse 19, he explains the parable of the sower and the seed. It's really a parable of soils. The soils are the issue. And he talks about the first kind of soil that seed threw, was thrown on. It didn't penetrate. Nothing grew. The second kind of soil was rocky. Verse 20. Nothing grew there either. The third kind of soil was full of weeds, choked out the good seed. And the end of verse 22 says that soil was also, and the word is, unfruitful. Then verse 23 says, But the one who received seed, and the seed represents the gospel, in good ground, that is in a ready heart, is the one that hears the word and beyond just hearing it understands it and beyond just understanding it who also does what what does it say bears fruit some a hundred times some sixty some thirty but always fruit point number one Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 if you are truly in my kingdom you will obey my word. That'll be the desire of your heart. Secondly, you will produce what? Fruit. What is fruit? Two kinds of fruit in the scripture. Attitude fruit and action fruit. Attitude fruit is love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. That's attitude fruit. Who produces that? Galatians 5. Holy Spirit. So look at your life. You want to examine your life to see if you know Jesus Christ? Say, is my life characterized by love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, humility, self-control? Those are the fruit, of, that is, I should say, the fruit of the Spirit. And if that's there, that's evident that there is fruit. And the fruit indicates that there is true life. Other things are fruit. Hebrews 13 says, fruit is the praise of your lips. Do you have a thankful heart to God? Do you find yourself constantly thanking God for what he's done for you? Do you find yourself wanting to praise him? Do you find yourself singing songs of praise with a happy heart? Or do you have to grit your teeth and do it just because everybody around you is doing it? If God has changed your life, if Christ has recreated you, if you have a new inner person, that new inner person has a spontaneous desire to praise God. That is fruit. Philippians 1 says, any good deed is fruit. Anything you do in the name of Christ for His glory is fruit. Leading someone to Christ is fruit. As Paul talked about it to the Romans saying, I want to come and have some fruit among you. So you look at your life and say, is there any fruit there? Go over to chapter 13, verse 44. Let's look at a third factor. 
And I think these two little parables have been very misunderstood, particularly in dispensational circles. I think they're very simple. I'm glad when I first did this chapter, I just sort of let them interpret themselves before I read anybody's comments because it gets very confusing if you read too many commentaries on these simple parables. Verse 44 says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. In ancient times, people would hide their treasure in the ground. It was the safest place. Kind of like the pirate's treasure. They'd dig a hole, stick their treasure in, and leave a little map somewhere uh, to get themselves back to it when they wanted it. Sometimes, in the case of Achan, as an example, people actually hid their, hid their goods in the dirt and the floor of their own tent or their own home. But anyway, here is a treasure hidden in a field. So there's some guy out there plowing the field. This is a few generations later, no doubt. And he plows the field and up pops the treasure. And so he hides the treasure. Why? Because if he lets anybody know he's found it, it is so valuable, they'll probably kill him to get it. And because of joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys the field. You say, well, that's dishonest. He should have told the guy who owned the field that he found it. No, it's not dishonest. It's obvious from the parable that the guy who owned the field didn't own the treasure, that the treasure had been there a long time. If the guy was dishonest, he would have picked up the treasure and what? Split. The fact that he bought the whole field just to get the treasure shows how much integrity he had. And no doubt the treasure had been there a long time and didn't belong to the present owner either. And the law in ancient times was finders, keepers. So he bought the field. But I want you to notice the key to the whole parable is he sold everything he had and bought the field to get the treasure. Look at the next parable, verse 45. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant man seeking fine pearls as an investment. He found one pearl of so great a price, he sold how much? Everything he had and bought it. Now, in the first one, a guy inadvertently stumbles across a treasure, sells everything to buy it. The second one, a guy is spending his whole life looking for this treasure. When he finds it, he buys it. People come to Christ in those two ways. Some people almost stumble over the gospel. Some people spend their life pursuing the truth. In either case, when the truth of Christ was found, they both did the same thing. They sold how much? Everything. And may I suggest to you that true salvation comes to those who understand that they are giving up all they are for all that he is. In other words, salvation is not a matter of, well, I'm living my own life, I'm doing my own thing, and I'm going to add Jesus to my life just as fire insurance. It's really a total exchange. It's really saying, Lord, I want you to come into my life and be my Savior and my Master and my King, and I am willing to give up all of those things that I have held dear in order to have what you have for me. It's an exchanged life. It's not adding Jesus to what you're already into. It's not saying, well, I'm going to live the way I'm going to live, like the rock singer who said, I, I have Jesus now, but don't think it'll change my life or my act. That's not salvation. Jesus isn't an addendum. Jesus isn't a tack-on. It's a transformation. Look at verses 47 to 51 in Matthew 13. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a net thrown in the sea. Now this kind of a net is called a saginae in the Greek. 
It is a huge net. I mean, I'm telling you, this net could be a mile long. It could be a half mile, customarily as long as a half mile. That's a big net. Now you know why they were always mending their nets. And what they would do would be go out into the Sea of Galilee and they'd have a little dinghy uh, or an, an anchor of some kind and they would anchor one end of the net and then they'd sail the little boat a half a mile out until the net was literally stretched for a full half mile. The top of the net was corked and the bottom of the net had weights in it so the net would drop to the bottom and be corked on the top and it would be like this massive wall and everything would start swimming into it. Then they would take the boat and pull it in a circle and then begin to pull the net, the cords from the bottom and the cords from the top together until they pull this whole thing and in it would be everything imaginable old sandals, you name it old chariot wheels, anything everything usable fish and unusable things they would drag the thing all the way up to the shore and when they got it to the shore they would sort it out and that's what we see here in verse 48 when it was full they drew it to the shore and they sat down and notice this they collected the good into vessels and threw the bad away and that's how it'll be at the end of the age the angels will come forth and they'll separate the wicked from the righteous how can you tell the saved from the unsaved the saved are righteous and the unsaved are what wicked so you look at your life What's the pattern of your life? What kind of life do you live? Do you live a life of obedience to God? Do you live a life of righteousness? Doing right? Or is the pattern of your life wicked? Ask yourself uh, what your thoughts are like. What your words are like. What kind of entertainment do you seek? What kind of relationships do you seek? These are the questions you have to ask. Being a Christian, you see, is all about the kind of person you are. Did you get that? It's all about the kind of person you are. Not perfect. You sin, yes, and I sin, yes, but I hate that. It's a matter of loving righteousness, hating sin. It's a matter of denying self and longing that Christ be glorified. That's the stuff that really indicates true salvation. That's the basic of the Christian life. In Matthew, a little bit further, chapter 22, I need to add this as we conclude. And we could have said a lot more things about this gospel and the others that deal with the subject. But listen to this. This is a parable about a banquet, a marriage banquet, which was given by the king for his son, the king being God, the son being Christ, and all these people were invited to come. In verse 10, the servants went out into the highways and collected everybody who wanted to come, good and bad. And that means um, from a human viewpoint, some were morally evil and wretched like harlots and robbers and some were good and upright religionists and well-meaning, good-intentioned people. But all of them were sinners alike and all were welcome to the Savior's wedding. The wedding was furnished with guests. This is a picture of the redeemed gathering before the Lord. They come from everywhere and there they are. So the king comes in to see the guests and there's a man who doesn't have on a wedding garment. I call this guy the kingdom crasher. 
He tried to crash the kingdom. He didn't have a garment on. Apparently, whenever you went to a wedding, it was a proper garment to have. This guy didn't have it. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without having a wedding garment? What did he say? Didn't say anything. Didn't have any answer. He said to the king, uh, the king said to the servants, tie him up, haul him out, throw him into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, wait a minute, what's that describing? What place has weeping and gnashing of teeth? Hell. What place is outer darkness? Hell. Throw him into hell, he says. Ooh. You say, oh, maybe the guy wanted to be there. Maybe he wanted to be there. Sure he wanted to be there. Maybe he knew all about what, what the sun was like. Maybe he believed. Maybe he was afraid of being left out of the kingdom. Maybe he even felt bad about his sin. I mean, all of those things might have been there, just like those things we saw earlier. But there's something he didn't have. What didn't he have? Wedding garment. You say, well, what, what, what does a wedding garment mean? Let me tell you what it means. And I'll tell you from the words of Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah 61.10, listen to what it says. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom. Isn't that beautiful? What was the wedding garment then? The robe of what? Righteousness. When you came to Jesus Christ, if you're a true Christian, young people, when you came to Christ, He took away an unrighteous, evil nature and gave you a new, holy, righteous nature. The garment of salvation. You can't crash the kingdom without it. And if you have it, it'll be manifest. It'll be evident. Because you'll be a doer of the word and not a hearer. You'll be a lover of righteousness and a hater of sin. You'll be one who willingly denies self and the flesh to live to the glory of God and when you fail to do that and when I fail to do that we feel deeply the pain of that failure that's what marks one who wears the wedding garment so when you're doing an inventory on your heart and you're saying am I a Christian don't say this I must be once I went forward in a service what does that mean not necessarily anything, right? I must be. I certainly want to go to heaven. I must be. I believe in Jesus. I, I must be. I, I, I feel sinful. That may mean nothing more than demon faith. What you want to do is look at your life and see what's there. Love righteousness. Love holiness, love God, love Christ, hate sin. 
desire to set myself aside and do what pleases him that's the stuff that marks true salvation and Jesus said listen to this Matthew 7 there are few people who find that right it's not a broad way it's a what it's a narrow way let's bow our heads together